Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to, I haven't talked to you really all week. <laughs> um... So I'd like to hear what you did this weekend. I know you're moving, so you've got a lot going on with that. So, Rip. Yeah, I once again find myself in a situation where I can't move in all of the way to the new place. So if you have been following along on the podcast since the beginning, I had moved from my old apartment into this place and I had to move twice because right the month before I was going to move the rental company was like oh actually the current tenants want to stay for another two weeks and I was like "Uh, but my lease is up on the 30th and you're telling me I can't move in until the 15th so I live in the same area as my parents do so I ended up having to move all of my stuff into my parents house for two weeks and then move again so I moved twice for two weeks in two weeks so similar situation now is I can't move in all of my things to the new place that I'm moving into so it's just like I'm feeling very in limbo right now but anyway one thing that I did like that I did this (laughs) weekend was um I went to the Maryland Renaissance Festival which I've been going to every year except COVID for a very long time ever since I was a kid and if you've never been to a Renaissance Fair it is exactly as nerdy as you think it is and it is super fun people all over the place dress up in like period pieces or they'll dress up as like pirates or you could honestly wear any cosplay and people would just be like yeah that fits and they have like jousting and they have all these different kinds of food it's just a really cool place to be they have all tons of like really cool vendors and Maryland is I think one of the two biggest ones in the whole U.S. which is crazy because like Maryland is such a small state so I did that this past weekend and um, it was super fun. So I highly recommend if you can I've never, never go. been to the Renaissance Fair. I think I may have gone when I was really young. It was probably like a school thing maybe, but I might be making that up entirely. Um, but my question for you is, did you dress up in costume? And if so, what costume did you wear? I did not dress up because I don't have uh, what my mom would call a medieval wench costume, <laughs> <laughs> which is where like what, what a lot of women wear. So it's basically like, the full skirts, like an off-the-shoulder kind of like frilly top, and then this like corset-type vest situation thing, um, which I do not have any of that. I was just saying when we were driving home yesterday, I would like to go in some kind of costume next year, but me personally, I'm probably more of a like pirate kind of vibe <gasps> I person. I could totally see you rocking so a pirate vibe. maybe we'll go that way. We'll see. Unclear. But I have a whole nother year to think about it, so. That's my Halloween vibe, is I think of really great ideas after Halloween, and then I'm like, oh, I have a whole year to execute it, and then I... <laughs> And then the next Halloween happens and then it happens all over again. Poor Elodie. She's basically (laughs) screwed unless she takes over the whole Halloween thing. Uh, Because Casey's just as bad with it. So I think I'm just 
yeah, I feel you on that. But I could totally see you rocking a really great pirate pirate vibe. You got the dark nails right now. People can't see you right now, but I can see her. And she's got dark nails going. But so speaking of moving, one more thing. This goes into my recommendation for the week is fall is a really great time to be cleaning all of the things out, right? Marie Kondo, your life kind of thing. But especially when you're moving, right, is a really great opportunity to go through clothes that you don't wear anymore or clothes that don't fit or, you know, whatever. And so I've been donating my clothes and you guys know I read a lot. I've been donating a lot of books to use bookstores as well. Um, which is really cool because the one that I go to locally, and I think they have them around the country, is called Second Story Books. And if you sell books there, then they'll give you store credit so you can buy more used books. So the cycle continues. And then I've been donating my clothes to a local women's charity called Interfaith Clothing Center. And there's a place um, on the internet, on the line, as Christina would say. If you've seen the internship, um, that's called you know Thread what I'm Up, talking about. Which is where you can either get a clean-out bag from them or you can use any box that you want, fill it with clothes, and you just ship it off to them. And they will either pay you for the clothes that they can consign and sell or they will donate them to a charity as well. So I did all three of those things and it felt great to be getting rid of some stuff so I wouldn't have to take them in that's the That's some real fall vibes you got going on moving cleaning out clearing stuff out i love that i um i was in a very like get everything out vibe so <laughs> that's kind of the the energy when you're moving anyways is just get everything out at some point in a move it's just like throw box throw items in box or trash and move on with your life you know i like that you're being thoughtful yep. about it though and trying to donate where you can i think that's always really good and it's so good for the environment and all of the things that make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Uh, <laughs> and that I'm trying to be better about. Speaking of feeling warm and fuzzy inside, Christina has a great recommendation for this yeah, week too. Yeah, so my, that is such a funny segue into my recommendation. So I don't know if anyone else is into it, but I have been really loving the rise of the cozy hooded sweatshirts and how that's really coming back in style and especially the oversized ones so I have been online like uh, window shopping and actually shopping at uh, various stores collecting my ideal comfy cozy casual fall attire and I've been I got a couple of new things from Madewell specifically they're like make weekends longer line it's like I have like the sweatshirt that I'm wearing right now and they, it's just like so soft and cozy and I love them. Um, and so I've been really digging that and I brought them down for I think what might be the last decent beach weekend is what we did this past weekend at my in-laws. We went down there. Um, they have a beach house in, on the Delaware, um, in Delaware at the Delaware beaches. And we went there and it was like this beautiful fall but still warm beach thing and LED went in the water which was fun but I think it's probably like the last time we'll really be able to go in the water for the season but um I've been really digging all of all things kind of leaning into the fall energy of everything and specifically uh we went to um Maple Acres Farm just recently with Elodie and my brother and sister-in-law and our niece came too which was really fun and they had a pick your own flowers which was so cute and um super reasonable like you know you can buy a bouquet of flowers it's like 15 bucks and you get like five flowers this was like you we picked like 
30 flowers and it was like 10 bucks like it was insane um and they were beautiful and they're still like this was a couple weeks ago when we ended up going um last weekend and we i they're still in the vase doing awesome so highly recommend doing something like that and highly recommend getting some casual comfy athleisure athleisure I did it. Dana's nodding. Um, clothing to go along with the vibes. <laughs> um, well, I would also transition here. I would also recommend getting into some comfy clothes for this uh, topic that we're going to talk about today because this is not exactly a light topic. <laughs> um, so in today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Colleen Reichman about alcohol and alcohol use. Um, and we have some disclaimers before we get there for you all yeah, today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think really at the at the root of this, although it's a heavy topic, I think the truth is it's really it's important. really important and I think it's often overlooked. And I think the main root of this whole conversation is for this to be an invitation to kind of look at your your relationship with alcohol and the role it plays in your life and how you might be using it in ways that maybe you don't want to. The same way that we invite everyone who's listening to our podcast to look at their relationship with food, looking at the relationship with alcohol. I feel like that's what today's about, but looking at food, movement too is another big one that we talk about a lot. And we felt like this is something that's really important that with the rise of like, the um, sobriety type movement and everyone kind of going in that that route. I think it was a cool topic for us to discuss today. And it's never about passing any kind of judgment. That's not what this episode is about at all. It's mainly just a commentary on alcohol culture. And again, that invitation for you to think about it and how it might play a role in your life and maybe where on this broad spectrum you might feel like you land with your relationship with alcohol. Right. And we wanted to talk about this with Colleen today because um, this must have been a couple of weeks ago or over the summer she had posted something, um, and we'll get into this with her, but basically about alcohol culture. And we started thinking about it of how if you have a complicated or all or nothing type relationship with food, it's very common to see that mirrored in your relationship with alcohol, right? And like Christina was saying with, you know, the rise of sobriety culture and there was a really popular book called Sober Curious mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I, I know people that have like gotten into that and stuff. And like Christina mentioned, this is no way us saying like whatever the decision you make with and how to engage with alcohol, this is not a way to pass judgment, right? What we want you to think about is just like with our relationship with food, it's not like there's only two ways to be. It's not like, oh yeah, I have a perfectly healthy relationship with food or I have an eating disorder, right? There's not, there's a very wide spectrum of behaviors that we can have with food and relationship that we can have with food. And it's the same thing with alcohol, right? It's not, oh, I either don't drink or I'm an alcoholic or I have a completely rela healthy relationship with alcohol 100% of the time or I'm a diagnosed alcoholic, right? So this is just an invitation for you to Really think about, you know, your relationship with alcohol, how it might mirror your relationship with food, how sometimes maybe when you're engaging with alcohol, it may trigger some behaviors in your relationship with food or trigger some thoughts that you thought you were over 
with regards to your relationship with food, those can be pulled out when alcohol comes into play, right? And so we just wanted to establish this as a very safe, non-judgmental space, right? Like as we always do, but alcohol tends to be a pretty touchy subject for a lot of people. So we just want to make sure that we're all on the same page going into yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's really about that invitation of looking at it on whatever comfort level that you have around looking at it too. Um, so I'm really excited and I'm really excited for feedback. So this is, again, another invitation for you to message us, DM us, email us, talk about it, bring it up. Do you want to follow up? Like, what questions do you have? What things are coming up for you? Um, it, we'd love to hear more and what your thoughts are. So as always, message us. We want to hear from you. Hello at wholeheartedeating.com. You can find us on Instagram at Christina Hort Nutrition and Dana Monsies underscore CNS. Find us on our website, all the places. Let's get started. So Colleen, we'd love for you to talk a little bit about you and your work as an ED specialist. Thanks for having me on. I am, like you said, an eating disorder specialist, a clinical psychologist with a group practice in Philadelphia called Therapy for Eating Disorders and Body Image. It's pretty straightforward, the name. Um, What else? I moved here, I moved to the Philadelphia area maybe two, actually three years ago now, and um, have since become very devoted. Like I'm a Philadelphia enthusiast, I call myself, um, and I just love the work that I do at the private practice. Um, And yeah, I feel like it's kind of my calling. I struggled with an eating disorder when I was in high school and then throughout college and never wanted to be an eating disorders therapist. I was like, I'll do anything else anything I'll do therapy with any any other people um but then kind of just fell into it and as soon as I did I realized it was like there was no going back it was just kind of a passion of mine so I took off from there and yeah I'm just really happy doing what I do I also have a one-year-old named Ezra and then two one golden doodle and one sheep a doodle well it's it's so funny that you said like the eating disorder therapy world is like the last thing you wanted to get into. But as we can tell from your Instagram, when you're talking about, you know, different topics that have come up with clients, there's a lot of like intersectionality here of talking about, you know, relationships and then alcohol and a lot of other things. So recently, like a couple of weeks ago, you did a post about wine culture and women. So could you talk a little bit more about what inspired you to write that post? Sure. I think it was, I think it actually was TikTok seeing um, randomly a lot of videos. I don't know why, I guess because I'm a mom, I was targeted with these like mommy wine culture videos, Um, just like videos of mostly women joking about needing to drink to get through the day. And the more I thought about it, the more it was just disturbing to me on some level I know I don't I know people call this like I'm being a buzzkill and stuff but it reminded me so much of like the mommy's little helper era of the 1950s when there was kind of the running joke of women not even the running joke the theme of women I think it was taking Valium to get through the day and to me it just seems like 
we've switched out Valium for alcohol and it's just a big joke, but there's kind of darker underpinnings to it, if that makes sense. And so I, I wrote something up and posted it and then got a lot of complicated feedback. There was a lot of differing opinions, but I thought it was like great conversation and I definitely am just interested in talking more about it. And I, you know, speaking of TikTok, I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic because when everybody was shut down and not going to work and there was like this whole joke about like all millennials do is just drink during the pandemic because they don't have anything else to do. And Gen Z was like, what are you guys even doing on this app? So I think it's become even more um, like highlighted over the past year and a half. But I think we can easily say that this work hard, party harder and like wine mom culture and just like the general alcohol culture of our culture, like the U.S. culture especially, and in other countries like westernized countries as well, is just even if you're not an alcoholic or don't identify as an alcoholic, it can still be problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I don't, I didn't mean, when I tried to start that conversation, I wasn't trying to say that anyone who drinks wine is an alcoholic. Um, but some people did like, you know, obviously took offense to it and felt that way because that's not of course I don't believe that's the case but I do think it whether you identify as an alcoholic or not if you're using alcohol primarily to numb out to kind of like numb emotions and as like a main coping tool and self-care because it's really it's not self-care at the end of the day I mean it's like a, it could be a fun thing but it's not self-care um, that's problematic in my in my opinion I think what your post was and what I loved so much about it was that it was just an invitation to open up the conversation of how am I using alcohol and how has alcohol been normalized for me and how has like the same way that we we normalize the conversation of dieting and disordered eating behaviors I think it can very easily be be a normalization of that as well on the alcohol spectrum too and thinking about it as a spectrum and just saying that just because um like alcohol isn't a just a problem if you're diagnosed as an alcoholic there's a lot of layers to look into and I really love that post as an invitation to kind of think about that a little bit more and to kind of think about your relationship with alcohol yeah I I definitely think that there's a spectrum of alcohol use and there's all different opinions I, I mean it definitely used to be like either you have a healthy relationship with it or you're an alcoholic or addicted. And I think, and then sobriety is the only way. And I know that's shifted a lot in the past like decade or so. Um, There's just more, the continuum theory is people are buying into it more. Um, And I definitely believe in that. And I think something, I believe it's 50% of people who struggle with eating disorders end up struggling with addiction of some sort or just substance misuse of some sort. So it's definitely, there's like a huge crossover. And I think it's reflective of the relationship between alcohol and food for all of us, like eating disorder or not, there's definitely a relationship there. And um, I think people use like food and lack of food and things we do with food to numb out and kind of disconnect from our bodies and problems. And then of course we do the same thing with alcohol. Um, so it's really, it can kind of be like almost like a whack-a-mole game where like, if you're not doing one, maybe you shift to the other. And a lot of my clients will use alcohol to quell like the constant 
guilt or the eating disorder voice around food to be able to like participate in the night out and or to just eat dinner without experiencing those thoughts so loudly, which is so understandable. But again, it's really like problematic and just kind of swapping one numbing tool for another. So it definitely all exists on a continuum. And I think it's, and we all exist on that continuum. Like we might not reach the diagnosable levels of anything, but we're like kind of traveling up and down it all the time ourselves. Yeah. And I think um, I work with a lot of college students and I, I see this a lot where when people use alcohol at no matter what time period in their life, right? If you have any kind of disordered eating, hardcore dieting, on and off the wagon, right? Once they like, quote, allow themselves to have the alcohol, lowers inhibitions and everything. If you're using the dieting or the disordered eating as a control mechanism, right? Then that goes out the window and then you kind of fall into this like binge restrict cycle with food triggered by the alcohol, which then the next morning or the Monday, it's like, oh, I got to, you know, start over all over again. And so I see so much that if people identify with like an all or nothing or, you know, quote, on and off the wagon relationship with food, whether it's just diet starts Monday or it's, you know, disordered eating or a full-blown eating disorder, it's much more likely that you also have a really similar relationship with alcohol, at least from what I've seen. Or if you feel very like, not necessarily like sobriety, but if you feel very, oh, I don't drink during the weekend, then I just go for it on the weekends. It's much more likely that you have a parallel relationship with food or maybe somewhere else in your life as well. Have you seen this too? Yeah. And it seems, I think the college thing is important because I think it obviously can start sooner than that, but that's like a, I don't know, like that really sets it off for some people because there's so much emphasis on like freshman 15, but we also want to, you know, it's the college years. It's supposed to be the best years of your life. So you want to party all the time. So then there's the swapping out, like saving up calories for alcohol and the whole like drunkorexia debate. And it's just so normalized in college. And it really, I think it sets people up for this pattern of like engaging and linking the two and swapping the two out. And then it just can become very like toxic and cyclic for people, like you're saying. Speaking of that, right, because it is so normalized in college, but it's also really normalized in, especially in your 20s, right, if we're talking about right out of college, it's like, oh, I finally have a job and I finally have money, so we're going to go out to happy hour every night and just get hammered with, you know, maybe for you guys, it's Philly social sports. We have like DC social sports, which is just like a totally normalized, let's go out and like half play a sport, but actually we're just all going to go out and get drunks together and then show up at work the next morning and be totally hungover and we're all just going to laugh about it. But so can you dive a little bit more into the normalization of alcohol consumption and alcohol consumption as a coping mechanism? Yeah, that... I forgot about that. That one, and what I first realized that that was happening when I got to, I guess I was like delayed in making friends in adulthood after college because the first time I was invited to one of those like leagues where you play kickball, but you have like a drink in your hand, I, it like baffled me because I was like, I just can't. I mean, I, I guess I can understand, like, I can definitely understand why it all got started, but it's just so interesting that we have like, we have to have alcohol for it to be fun or for us to finally be able to like let loose. And I think some of it does come from that, like after college, 
when you're in your 20s, like a lot of us start to kind of feel like we have to grind all day and we're in jobs that we might not like as much. So there's this emphasis, like when you're finally off and you have downtime, you want to like really let loose and have like the most fun possible. And it's like that work hard, play hard mentality, but it starts to feel almost like desperate. And then I don't know, it's just interesting to me that the alcohol in our culture is always part of like the play hard and people actually seem to sometimes take offense to it if you're not drinking like it's almost like well that's then you're you must be judging me and it becomes like tense almost which is something else I've observed which I think is so indicative of the the whole culture not just like college not your 20s like I'm in my 30s and that still seems to happen I just don't I'm not like sober per se but alcohol's always just made me very sick like I would wake up in college just vomiting every like four times a week in the morning because I had like even when I just had a few drinks the night before so I just don't often drink um, and it seems to still like in my 30s people still I do think it makes people uncomfortable which is really unfortunate because it's you know it creates like a tension and it and it really shouldn't you know like it's to each his own I think that kind of plays kind of nicely into the idea around the relationship with food too though right like people it mirrors so so similarly like if you're on a diet and or if someone around you's on a diet or choosing certain foods it makes you feel uncomfortable because you're not choosing those foods too especially when you go out to eat I hear that a lot about the overanalyzation of their of their food choices and feeling the feeling other people's judgment even if it's just the perception and it's not actually happening um I think that's so I think that really comes into play in such a big way and um and I think that is like a lot of it is this this I think that kind of shows just how much our culture has really attached to alcohol as completely normal acceptable behavior until it's not right and where that like gray line is is very unclear for people and I think that's what's kind of dangerous about it and that I what I like so much about having this conversation and thinking about it more is because it's something that I've been thinking about personally why is it totally cool to be like it's like you said it's a it's a total joke for everybody to be thinking oh I'm getting you know I'm going to happy hour with my friends and we got so and so got wasted they peed their pants on the walk home like totally normal like ha 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 everything's funny but when you have a conversation around if someone says oh I see that they're um or if you're noticing that you're like a quote-unquote emotional eater or eating a lot or doing something different how that is really defined as something like that has to be fixed right like eating like pancakes for breakfast is considered kind of bad or eating into like eating ice cream to the same amount is considered bad and they want to change it. and I have to think like there has to be the main connection between it is is the threat is the fat phobia right like you can you can drink and it's not going to change and people don't associate it with a body size the same way that they associate food and so I'd love for you to talk about if you agree, like, do you see that connection? Do you think that that's a big driver for why it's so normalized and why it's not something that people tend to to consider on a spectrum? Honestly, like eating and disordered behavior around food, like all forms of it, I think is really similar. Like people view that similarly to alcohol and that like, it's not, maybe there's not as much, no, there's definitely like a lot of joking about it and like normalization. And so it's like, all okay and kind of funny until it's not 
Um, except for, I do think most of the time, like the binge eating and like quote unquote emotional eating is like pretty demonized. And it's, that's like, most people aren't laughing when they're doing that themselves. And it's more like shrouded in secrecy and shame. And it it's solely in my opinion, because of fat phobia. Like, I don't think we would think much of emotional eating, which I have like complicated feelings about that term anyway, but I don't think we would blink an eye at it if it wasn't for fat phobia as like a coping tool. It would kind of be like scrolling on your phone, but I just don't think we would think it's bad if it wasn't for fat phobia and the idea that if you do this, it leads to weight gain and weight gain is the worst thing. And then, so it has to be controlled. So it's definitely viewed in that more shameful light versus if you're kind of just, you know, talking about like restricting. It's really interesting too. I'm thinking about, as you were saying that, the the like fat phobia and diet culture underpinnings of alcohol culture. It's amazing and crazy to me how people can binge drink beer or all of these other things and they don't see that as a problem. They see, they only see the weight gain that can result of binge drinking as a problem. So then their solution is not, okay, maybe I should check out my relationship with alcohol. I should just change from beer to a light beer or I should change from beer to a white claw or I should change from sugary drinks to only taking shots of vodka or something like that. A couple of years ago, I had... um, I was doing some like freelance writing and they asked me to write a column on healthy alcohol consumption. I get it on the one hand, like for example, if you drink sugary drinks all night, you're going to have a killer hangover and that doesn't feel very good, right? And then going into like alcohol dehydrates you and brings down your B vitamins and stuff from like a neutral nutrition perspective, okay. But then at the same time, it's like, are you looking for me as a dietitian to tell you like just drink vodka sodas all night? Because that is not healthy either. (laughs) That's so true. And it's so, there is so much emphasis on like, if there's a, instead of looking at like, why are we drinking so much or like the numbing factor, especially when I do think not to make it like a totally gendered thing, cause it's not, but there's more, I, I think there's more women that are like engaging in at least the wine jokes and stuff, because I think more women are using it to numb out. That was the whole point of that post actually, was not even necessarily about drinking alcohol. It was like, what's going on with the system that's set up to make women feel like we need a substance or we need something like a mind altering something to get through each and every day. Like that's not our fault. That's the system's fault. Um, but people like a lot of people missed that and felt like it was shamey and stuff. So I feel like I didn't phrase that exactly right. But it was, I feel like that's the bigger question is what's going on with the system that makes people, instead of question the alcohol consumption, be more like, well, how do I just limit the sugar? Like, I just, I want to keep, you know, using this every night or just numbing out, but I don't want the weight gain because we live in this horribly fat phobic society. So let me just, figure out how to drink as much alcohol as possible with as little calories or sugar. Like it's so backwards or something when you stop to think about it, but that's everybody's go-to. Especially I think it really leads back to that, um, like you mentioned earlier, that work hard, play hard. Why are we working so hard to the point that we feel like we need to play that hard to begin with? And what is going on culturally from that perspective? And so I don't know. I think of it so much as as that, like like we said, like an invitation to think about it from that perspective of why 
why don't I have the support that I need or the tools, the tools that I need to to say no to certain things or to um, why do I have to spread myself so thin or why can't I create more space for myself or creating more like I was having a conversation with a client earlier this week about like stress resilience and how much that's lacking and how we go we go towards these things of saying oh I can't remove everything off of my to-do list and all the things that I'm expected to do and the pressure that I'm putting on myself so I'm gonna come up with other ways to kind of quote-unquote self-care and my self-care is you know having a bottle of wine at home at the end of the day after a long work day or after a bad meeting or at noon because I can't go anywhere because we're in the middle of COVID and I think about that like from like a from like an action standpoint for people and so I'd love for you to share some ideas of like a, like reflection questions for for the people who are listening on how they can kind of examine their relationship with alcohol um, and other things that they may be using as coping ne- uh, me- mechanisms um, that are deemed access- um, acceptable or unacceptable by societal standards. I think a good place to start with those, the questions, if you want to actually examine your relationship with alcohol would be like, if I were asked to stop, or if there were a reason that I had to stop drinking altogether for like a month or two months or, you know, whatever, how would that feel? Like, what would that bring up for me? What emotions would occur? Like, what thoughts would I have? And then kind of go from there. Because if your first thought is like, like almost like a trapped feeling or um, instant anxiety. That's just not even, I'm not saying that's even indicative of a problem. It's just data for you to kind of then go from there and see, well, what does that mean? Like why, you know, why do I need it each night? And what is it doing for me? And then I also think the question of like, how am I using it? Um, just and, and in general, what is it doing for me when I have the alcohol? Like, what's going on for me? What is it? I, I think there's there's some really interesting research that I think is heavily funded that talks about like the relationship between having a glass of wine a night and like isn't something like good for your heart or something they say red wine. I'm always so interested in that research and I want to do like a study where there's a control group of there's people who have the glass of wine each night and there's people who sit in the same like type of chair and just like breathe deeply for that 45 minutes or like meditate and then see like let's look at heart stuff (laughs) between the two groups and see because I just think um, like maybe it is like it's doing that the same thing that like you're just taking a moment for yourself and you don't have another moment throughout the rest of the day. Like there's no other time to relax. And is that okay? Like, how do you feel about that? That it's kind of your main relaxation or coping mechanism. And then if you do think like maybe you're not okay with that or you'd want to try something else, I think then starting to think about what could I, because just taking it away, I think is similar to like just taking away almost someone's eating disorder or something like you have to put something else in there. So what else could I try in the evening? I think the evenings is probably the, the time of day when a lot of people are falling into this pattern. So what else could I try in the evenings or what do I need to implement in my life to get that desired effect or take away from my life during the day so that I don't need it as much, if that makes sense. 
I said I sometimes call it like with some people that try fact or no that also involves movement but like working on the relationship with food movement and then alcohol and then for some people like sex is in there too like the four of them or the three of them and how when you work on one inevitably like others are going to be affected and impacted and you can kind of heal all around that was me the first time I did my first whole I reflect back the first thing that I wanted to have was alcohol and cupcakes Mm -hmm. like that was like what I said I wanted to go have and I remember thinking to myself like why did I care about alcohol I don't really I was not a big drinker like prior to that wasn't anything but I think it just really feeds into what Dana was talking about is if you have that restrictive mentality that you have that binge you know swing at the end afterwards and I think that really shows that that was my pattern, my pattern was restrictive, like, oh, I can do this, I can do this restrictive protocol, I can cut out alcohol for 30 days. And then at the end of it, it's like, oh, my God, all I want is champagne. I don't think I ever really liked champagne prior to that time. But for whatever reason, that was all of a sudden all that you can think about, be careful about saying to my saying to yourself, oh, I'm just going to remove it, because what's the uptick from there, right? And how do you then think about how is that going to pull that thread later on? And what's that going to look like? This is for this is highly individualized, right? Each person's not going to be the same. But I think if you're exploring this relationship, and you're seeing a parallel between your relationship with, with food and dieting behaviors, and you're looking at your relationship with alcohol, I think it could be kind of interesting to think what what things can I add in? What new types of behaviors can I add in? Like, can I sit down at the end of the day and take, you know, five minutes of a mindfulness for myself to like get into a space, sit in a comfy chair, sit down? What if I read for 20 minutes? Um, what if I did something else? What if I watched a show that I liked for, for an episode of that instead and see what that was like? What if I did, you know, gentle movement or did stretching at the end of the day? Do I get the same feeling from it? What does that look like? Instead of just thinking, oh, well, this has to go. Because we just have such a mentality of saying, I got to cut this out. The immediate reaction when we have that all or nothing or on the wagon, off the wagon mentality that Dana mentioned, it's our first go-to is to cut. Mm-hmm. I think the instinct here could be to, to think about it a little bit differently and think, what could I do in replacement? Or what can I add in? Instead of thinking, what do I need to take away? And like, it has to be mm-hmm. this or the high, like that or the highway. Yeah. And even if you have to, because I think it's kind of a numbing tool at heart. So even if you just have to start with what else, like almost a harm reduction approach, what else could I use to numb at night? Because the like, could it be TV? And the reason I think like that's numbing too, but I'm not as interested in that because when it comes to alcohol, the very real the very real like consequence is that if you're drinking three to four glasses of wine each evening, alcoholic or not, like substance abuse or not, whatever you consider that, that for every human that has like pretty devastating effects on our like neurotransmitters and it's a depressant and it creates like a depressing cycle for people, at least like chemically. So it's just whether you want whether sobriety is like the route you want to take at some point or just like figuring out more moderation, it is important, I think, for for most of us, for mood to really examine the relationship with alcohol. Because unlike some other numbing tools like TV, which might not be like fantastic, it it's a substance. It's like, you know, it's a substance that has effects on our neurotransmitters and it's just kind of important to use it in ways that work for you, not against you. 
Yeah, and I really like what you said before of how, you know, and this this is even partially just like a surface approach, right? It's like, okay, we're looking at the behaviors and we're trying to, you know, fix the behaviors or examine the behaviors. But I like what you said before of we need to examine why we feel like we need these behaviors in the first place and why we feel like these are the only tools, right? Like, why do I feel like I need to numb out at night? Like what, and that can be like layers and layers, right? The first one might be like, oh, I'm just really stressed and I have so much on my plate, but that's not it. Like it goes a lot, a lot deeper than that, right? And so working with someone to help you uncover those layers to not only figure out, okay, what are some other behaviors that might benefit me more in the short term and the long term in addition to figuring out where is this coming from? Because anytime we're talking about something medical or mental health or nutrition or, you know, psychology, anything like this, you need to go deeper than just for, to use a nutrition example, just eliminate the foods and you'll be fine. Like, no, that doesn't help you figure out why, even if you are having, for example, sensitivities and tolerances to foods, bloating, IBS, all of it, it's not telling us where it's coming from. Just taking the surface Band-Aid approach away or putting a Band-Aid on it is not actually going to fix the root of the issue. So working with someone who can help you uncover those layers and go deeper, even though it's probably not going to be comfortable, right? Like nobody wants to do this work because it is messy and uncomfortable and it doesn't feel good. But having someone who's licensed and trained to help you go through those layers can be one of the healthiest things that you can ever do. Totally. And addressing it on that micro and macro, like like them starting out at the micro with like, well, what's the behavior? Am I doing this because maybe I am stressed, like really stressed? I think with the post that I did, it was like, you'd probably uncover, like, I'm really stressed these days. Why am I so stressed? Well, because I'm working, a lot of moms are, um, working full-time jobs basically while also being full-time moms well why am I doing that well because our society doesn't appreciate like motherhood at all or women in general and sets us all up to feel like we're failing whether we're mothers or not like whatever choice we make well then that's kind of like obviously a systemic issue so it kind of creates this idea of like what can I start to question and maybe even like push back on on the systemic level and then what micro, what changes can I make for myself personally on this like micro level? And it's just more like a well-rounded way of examining the issue and finding long-term peace, I think. It made, it's making me think too for, for everyone that's listening around, let's say you are having this examination, you're doing those micro, those micro examinations that you're talking about. And then you think, um, to yourself, okay, this is something that I want to create more more space to explore or create more boundaries for myself around it as I try to work on new coping mechanisms and new ways of how I'm going to approach this or what I'm going to do on the deeper layers. How am I going to ask for more help? How am I going to say no to stuff? Like how am I going to do all these types of things? I'd love for you to talk about um, how you can create boundaries Um, If you notice that people around you are participating or like encouraging these behaviors without like being like, like you said at the beginning, like a (laughs) buzzkill or like a jerk about it. But how can you say like, no boss, I'm not going to do that today. Like that can be done tomorrow. It's like the million boundaries are, I feel like so hard, especially at first. And the, the first thing that comes to mind is get ready to experience discomfort 
in like all of this, like, especially if you're talking about wanting to change the way you relate to both food and alcohol in a way that goes against the cultural narrative, I do think it's important to prepare yourself for like awkwardness because we can't change the people around us, unfortunately. We can maybe like plant seeds, but prepare yourself for those awkward encounters where people ask like, well, why aren't you drinking tonight? Or people kind of insinuate that you're the buzzkill by broaching these topics or they get weird when you're when you don't want to engage in the diet chatter like the more because I've been you know anti-diet for like years and years and I think I think it's still like weirds people out as much as it did in the beginning and there's as many awkward scenarios I'm just pretty like <laughs> like I don't notice them as much anymore because I'm very used to it so I think understanding that it might get uncomfortable and you might experience more feelings of distress at first and it will get easier over time if you kind of just stay the course um and I guess that goes for all boundaries like setting any boundary or asking for help when you're used to like pushing through um or being the primary caretaker at home who's like what is it called the default parent or something they call it if you're used to that it's like really uncomfortable to push back and say like I'm gonna work on asking for help a little bit more and understanding that it will feel wrong at first and part of that gets into like you're making yourself vulnerable when you ask for help like it's more of a vulnerable position instead of having like the shields on of the person who does it all and the person who's like constantly going and like the busiest so you're taking some of the shields off and getting more vulnerable, which again is super, super uncomfortable at first, but necessary for, I, you know, that idea. I kind of go back to the idea of like, what's more likely to bring me longer term peace at the end of the day? And is it all of these cycles that I'm engaging in over here or working on breaking them, feeling the discomfort, and then continuing to like walk forward? It's for me, at least it's almost always that second one. Yeah. And it's so, it's so important and really hard to do that work, right? Like we can all acknowledge that that work is the hardest work to do, you know? Um, so Colleen, this has been amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for coming on today. Before we let you go, can you please tell everybody about your book that came out this year? Oh yeah. So I had a book that came out in April that I co-authored, um, with another therapist who's also recovered from an eating disorder, Jen Rowland. And it's called The Inside Scoop to Eating, Discor to Eating Disorder Recovery, Advice from Two Therapists Who Have Been There. And it's kind of like my pride and joy at this point. It was um, many years in the making and many um, publishing agents who told me that it was like garbage or that, you know, I have all these like rejection letters and stuff. So it was really exciting to see it in print this year, finalized. But it's basically a book for... It's geared towards people with eating disorders, but really we kind of make it a point to say it's for anyone who is struggling in their relationship with food on a clinical or non-clinical level. And it's just kind of a collection of personal anecdotes, but then also like clinical and research proven tips and tricks to rework your relationship with food and movement in your body to get to a more peaceful place. And um, it's also good, I think, for like caregivers, um, parents, spouses of anyone who's struggling with their relationship with food and then 
clinicians, dietitians, like I think people in the field, it has kind of exercises and journaling prompts threaded throughout that like I pull it out during sessions and I'm like, let's have you do this journaling exercise that I came up with two years ago. <laughs> like, I think it's helpful for just that context as well. So. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to, um, it's on my list of books, the very long list of books. I'm really excited to, to dive into it and I hope all of our listeners do. And thank you again so much for coming on and having, you know, just a casual light conversation. <laughs> about our relationship with alcohol and food. Thanks for having me. This was great. Hey friends, it's Christina. Thanks for listening to the Whole Hearted Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with your family and friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you can, leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies using wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning how we can work with me or Dana for one-on-one nutrition counseling, or you want to check out one of our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. See you next week. Hey friend, what you been up to? What's the hot goss? What's the 411? They're athra, 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 how do you say that? Athra leisure. Athleisure. <laughs> if anyone's been watching, athra I can't leisure. say like, <laughs> na- like name, like people's names and words. It's just like, it never works for me. And so if you've listened to this before, and my clients laugh about it too because I I just botch names and it's not intended and um, I'm not trying to be like someone who doesn't think about it. I actually think about it a lot and I still end up botching it. That's the worst part about it.